So first of all, like, how is everything over there? Things are going well out here in Phoenix. Thanks for asking. How are things out in Taipei? Pretty good. We're, I'm, I'm actually, after our conversation, I'm going to go to a track session. Okay, right on. Cool. So uh, first of all, like, can you introduce yourself for the audience? Sure thing. My name is Adam Loyakino, and by formal education and training, I am the direct. I am a physical therapist, physical therapist, and performance coach. Uh, currently, is serving as a director of rehab in the NBA. I've worked previously in Major League Soccer and uh, the NWSL, so that's uh, pro soccer, both men's and women's here in the United States. And before that, was working as a college soccer coach. So kind of a good. Uh, little diversity from sport coaching to performance to rehab. Cool. That's pretty cool. So the first question I want to ask is from a soccer coach to a like performance coach and enter to another like uh, another position or or anyway to from a soccer coach to a performance coach and now as a rehab director, right? Correct. What, like, as the role changes and it all, like, combined with uh, sports, what's the difference? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's, there's a lot of different things that we could talk about. I think one thing that comes to mind is the sport itself, right? I think you have to respect and understand the demands of the two different sports, soccer, a much larger field space so different types of injuries you'll see based on the running demands also um, the tissue types that are tissue type injuries you may see but also some of the preventative things you may see are more geared towards muscle injury particularly hamstrings or groins versus in basketball right smaller spaces more less top end speed, but more high intensity acceleration and deceleration. So we see a lot more articular injuries such as ankle sprains or knee joint or low back issues. And I think that's a product of the demands of the sport and also a product of the type of athlete, right? Like in the NBA, you have much larger humans. So you tend, I think that in itself breeds certain injury characteristics but versus the smaller athlete that may exist in soccer. So, uh, at, does like does being a being a soccer coach help your career? I thought so. I think coaching at any level, at any sport, in any capacity, really teaches you some of the skills of planning, uh, commanding a room, being able to create motivation, um, being very adaptable. Right? Like if right if a you know, a training session, you show up and all of a sudden you don't have as many players as you thought would, or the session's not going as planned. I think you need to flip it on its head and figure out a way to make it successful while still achieving the goal that you wanted out of it. So ultimately, I don't think you need to be a team sport coach, but I think what coaching does is provide the tools to be able to effectively implement whatever strategy training strategy performance coaching rehab whatever it may be in a successful manner okay 
the next question will be what's the difference between like uh, the culture, cultural in like soccer and in NBA? Great question. They're, they're definitely different because of the demographic, I think, first off. I think soccer, what I miss about soccer is the diversity and the, especially the international influence, right? Um, I remember working in the MLS, you know, we had people from Angola, Portugal, uh, Germany, Switzerland, uh, Canada, United States, and then several states within the United States. So everyone kind of brings this their own diverse background, which makes the locker room a pretty cool space. And then also um, the diverse culture within the game itself, right? Different countries play the sport differently. So you kind of see some of those influences in the technical or tactical abilities of the player versus in the NBA, it's predominantly an American sport. I think, you know, with the 15 players that you have in a roster, maybe you have anywhere from two to four international players. So it's predominantly American-based sport with, um, English speaking individuals. And I think given those demographics, you breed this culture that is unique to each sport. Cool. So working at the NBA, there's going to be like off season and in season. Is there like uh, as a role as a physical therapist, uh, what's the difference between like what are the things you're gonna do in off season and in season and what's the difference? I think the biggest difference is just overall volume and intensity. I think in season, you have to respect the amount of games and travel that the NBA athlete does, right? So the NBA schedule averaging three to four games a week, depending on the week. So you have to acknowledge that the very high density of games and if you play three games in seven days, all three of those games may be in three different cities and three different parts of the country. So you have to account for travel. So the biggest thing that comes to mind with the difference between off-season and in-season is off-season high volume in the sense that you're trying to build the biggest gas tank possible to give the most robust engine possible from, and you can look at that from strength and power characteristics to endurance and sprint, repeat sprint capacity, uh, tolerance to jumping. So I think building up those volumes, eventually you're trying to build this big, big base, but ultimately, you know, once you get in season, you're just going to pull and pull and pull. And you're really trying to emphasize small doses to just maintain and hopefully not have too much of a drop off and reduced injury at the same time. Well, so I noticed that, uh, there's like different types of like, uh, technology, you guys use, right? So uh, today I kind of want to ask thoughts, your thoughts about like force plates. Sure, force plates is, a, is one piece of tech that we use and I'll speak upon it in the context of, let's say return to play in uh, scenario. So we do have a lot of baseline data on force plates that give us a profile of their jump and also the strategy that they may use. So when it comes to one, implementing training strategies, we'll kind of give them what they don't have and touch upon the things that they do really well. And then when we get into the return to play rehab, what we're trying to do is looking at some of the key metrics uh, within the force plates to then bring them back to a level of baseline. So if they let's for a lack of better terms, they start at a hundred pre-baseline baseline, they get injured. And then, you know, when they are cleared and capable of doing 
a reassessment, they're only at 75. Well, we're trying to bring them back up to 100. And what the, the cool thing about the force plates is with all the inputs that were given from that, we can really tailor their training and rehab program to target the areas that they are deficient in to then bring them back up to an acceptable level where they can perform at a high level. So is there like certain movement you're going to do on a force plate when we talk about like return to play? Primarily, we're looking at a, a CMJ, so a counter movement jump where their hands are on their hips and they're doing anywhere from you know three to five reps uh, with rest in between. So looking at single efforts. And that's the primary movement that we use on the force plates. So uh, besides counter movement jump, are you going to do anything like uh, uh, rotation? Because I noticed there's like, uh, force plate that can like measure the different vector force from different vector, right? Yeah, some of the some force plates out there can do that. Unfortunately, we don't have the technology right now uh, in house to reliably look at that data. I believe some of that data is very noisy and it's challenging to replicate some of those tests because you're dealing with multiple vectors at the same time. So currently we don't have that. I know we're exploring it and it's something we're looking into and hopefully uh, it's an opportunity for us down the road to explore more. Now, one thing that came to mind that we also use it for is not only assessment, but we also utilize it early on in a rehab process, right? Because the force plates are a dual force plate. So you have right and left. So say someone's coming off an ACL injury or some sort of surgery, right? They tend to want to offload the surgical side. So a basic movement, say as a squat, we can use it as biofeedback to make sure that they're distributing weight evenly between the surgical side and the, and the non-surgical side. So it's a great biofeedback tool for the athlete and also gives us insight as to how much they really are unloading or loading that affected side. Cool. That's like so much question for, for a split. So uh, working in the NBA, there's going to be players doing a lot of like jumping, running, and probably have a lot of like knee pain or like tendon pain. So how to deal with these kind of like stuff? Yeah, tendon pain is a tendinopathy is a very common thing, both Achilles and patellar tendinopathy. And ultimately what tendinopathy tells me is it's a load management issue. Right. It may be the tendon may have been undertrained. And when you get into training camp or you get into back to playing, that because it's an untrained state or unprepared state, when you start to induce high volume, high intensity, it just can't handle it. Right. And so it tells the body, hey, like I'm not ready to do this. Vice versa, where it can also just be um, too much too fast. Or it, over a long period of time, it can just be too much gradually going as, as you progress over time. So the way I view these is ultimately we have to manage load, whether that's from reducing impact or inducing intervention strategies that we know are beneficial to tendons because tendons respond well to load. We know that that's in the research that we want to load the tendons, but we want to load them in a non-painful way. So a lot of the research is focused on kind of this continuum of exercise to manage to manage uh, the tendinopathy. And so on the low level, what we're really talking about is isometric training, just holding positions because isometrics do a couple of things. They help increase stiffness to the tendon itself. They induce a, what uh, 
relaxation or with the stress, uh, stress sharing, I think of the terminology, some of the key far work that he had done um, or stress shielding, excuse me, stress shielding. So trying to alleviate stress or evenly distribute stress across the tendon and isometrics are shown to do that. While also they help manage pain. It's a great pain management tool as well. Then as you progress from like non-painful kind of heavy isometric training, then the research suggests, hey, we need to, we need to load this heavy. And so that's where it's popped to do like heavy eccentrics or heavy, slow resistant training. And that typically in the form of some sort of back squatting, maybe even some deadlifting if it's appropriate or you know, some calf raising if it's you know, an Achilles tendinopathy. And then you progress down the next phase of the continuum of low intensity, high volume plyometrics. So high ground contact times, but repeated long durations. And then you're progressing at the end to short ground contact time. So high intensity and low volume. So this kind of this continuum across tendinopathies that you're trying to manage. And, some, and you'll find that certain athletes within a certain phase of the rehab or during the course of the season just need to explore one or the other. And not, no one is right or wrong. I think you find several different protocols out there that suggest, you know, any variation of those exercises. But it's important to acknowledge where the athlete can handle load maximize that and then just gradually progress them to be able to tolerate uh, load and get them back to impact training as soon as possible. So uh, during, during the in season, there's going to be a lot of games. So there's going to be a lot of impact. So uh, how to like microdose these kind of like uh, re, uh, isometric or like uh, heavy and slow movement into like your training or like your rehab session? Great question. And I think it's, um, it's one that's grown popular traction over recent years, given how many, how much we've learned about tendon health and how much games we play. So I know our performance staff, our strength and conditioning coaches do a fantastic job of, like you said, microdosing um, the, the exercises by primarily doing them in short sessions because we see them so often that a lot of it's either happening pre-game or pre-practice. And they're just small, maybe two at most three sets, or they're doing it, and they might even be doing it daily. And they do a great job of kind of cycling. Is it going to be, uh, you know, a high-intensity day? Is it going to be a low-intensity day? Is it extensive, intensive? And there, our staff does a great job cycling those things based on the demands of the schedule as well. So to answer your question, there's no exact science to it, but small doses, pre-practice, pre-game, just trying to create a routine, even post-game. But, you know, a lot of a lot of NBA teams are in the camp of doing post-game lifts primarily because if you're going to induce a high-intensity stimulus, the best time to do it is immediately after the game to then allow the largest recovery time before the next game rather than trying to have a high-intensity game. Then the next day in practice, have a high-intensity lifting session and ultimately the athlete doing something high-intensity every day. So I think a lot of teams, in particular our team as well, implement the post-game lifts where they may do some of those eccentrics and may do some of those isometrics to help with tendon health. You mentioned that there's some teams they're going to use like pre-game lift, and there's some teams they're going to do post-game lift, right? So, uh, what do you think is the difference between like pre-game and post-game? I think pregame lift is kind of both psychological and physiological. I think psychologically it's, it's routine and habit. And when athletes have a, I mean, that's the, the premise of a pregame routine, a pregame ritual, so to speak, it kind of gives them 
the comfort and space of like, okay, I am gearing up to play a game and I'm going to do the same exact thing to get my mind right and my body right. And so I think the pregame routine does that, that for them psychologically because they're not really loading too heavy and they're not doing too much load pregame because ultimately they're just prepping to play a game, the most intense thing they're going to do in the course of a season. Post-game lift, the purpose of that is if it fits within the schedule, given the game density, trying to elicit some sort of physiological adaptation, whether it be neurological, whether it be you know, geared towards tendon health, whether it be geared towards muscle health, whatever it may be, just keeping it short and sweet and making the main thing be the main thing. And that's how I, I from my perspective, view how our staff and I've seen other teams manage pregame and postgame lifting sessions. So uh, I noticed that uh game day lift are getting like more tension no matter it's in like basketball baseball or like like any sport right so uh as you work in the nba when does that like post uh game day lift starting to get people's tension in the league not quite sure I follow. Like, are you are you referring to is like when has it gotten traction? When is it being popular, or when has it become mainstream? I mean, when does like coaches in the NBA uh, starting like to do the game day lift? I think you mean like within the course of a season? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think from from game one. I just keep making make it a habit, make it a ritual. I think you the sooner you start it and you you program it appropriately right you're not going to do something too heavy too fast too soon too much volume too much intensity too soon so it's periodization scheme or periodization model fits within that as well where you're trying to build up what the tolerance of these athletes doing and then you're maintaining over the course of the season so i think from game one you can I think you can start doing some of those things and then building them over time or unloading them over time based on the density of the schedule. So uh, I'm sorry to ask. I'm sorry that probably asked it the wrong way. I mean, uh, like it's the concept is getting like popular these days. These like I think last few years, right? So like like when does this like concept getting started in the or getting the tr- traction to the performance coach in NBA? Is it like a few years ago or is it like uh, maybe like a decade ago? I've been in the league for uh, my sixth season and, I, and since my first season six years ago, I've seen some athletes do post-game lifting and I've seen up until last year, same thing. So I think it's been around for a while. I can't pinpoint exactly when it happened, but I think it's been a part of the culture because the athletes understand that trying to play a game and lift heavy the next day and then play a game the day after, then lift heavy again. I think it's just too much over the course of a season. So trying to, to consolidate, um, consolidate those high intensity sessions on the days that are meant to be high intensity is what I've seen to have success within the league. And that dates back to, to when I first came in the league back in, you know, six seasons ago. Cool. Sorry about, sorry about my poor English. No worries. We got, we got to the answer. Not a problem. Cool. So the next question I want to go to, like, the ACL injury. 
So there's also a lot of like athletes playing NBA got ACL injury, no matter they tear it or they're gonna go through a surgery. So can you walk us through like how was the rehab process gonna go after like right right after the surgery? Sure, it's a I'll, I'll I'll try to keep it brief because there's a lot we can talk about with an ACL surgery, and so. The first phase of, let's talk about even before the surgery, because research suggests that if we give anywhere from, you know, three to six weeks of good strength training to maximize quadriceps strength, reduce swelling, restore range of motion as best as can, we've noticed that in the long-term post the surgery, those athletes that are stronger and a better condition and almost kind of questioning, should I go in and get this surgery that I'm that good of a job with the pre-op phase of rehab that when they come out on the other side they just do better they're more successful and I think that comes down to familiarity with the rehab plan that's going to come afterwards right a lot of the things we do before the surgery are eventually what we do post-surgery then also just giving confidence to the athlete but then building similar to what we were talking about earlier of building a robust big engine in the off season, I think the same thing applies to a surgical case where you're trying to do the same exact thing before surgery, because ultimately when you come out of surgery, you're going to instantly decline based on the immobility, your surgical precautions, your range of motion restrictions, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the higher you can raise the floor before or the, or the ceiling before surgery, the less of a drop-off you'll have post-op. So then as you, you know, okay, you have the surgery. Well, the first depending on the extent of the surgery, the complications, meniscal, MCL, whatever else may be included with the ACL, hopefully it's just an ACL. Those are the rare ones and lucky ones. Well, that's going to dictate kind of your precautions early on from say four to eight weeks. So depending on your surgery and the type of tissues uh, involved as well, you're going to have range of motion restrictions. You're going to have weight bearing restrictions. And so you work with your surgeon as far as managing those components. But as a physical therapist, the biggest thing we're trying to do is restore homeostasis, meaning we're trying to make that knee as quiet as possible, meaning as little as pain, as little as swelling, great quadriceps strength and contraction as best as we can, trying to reduce atrophy, but also protect the graft site as well. So those first eight weeks are really about mitigating atrophy as best you can, maintaining strength as best you can, protecting the site from a precautions perspective and then restoring range of motion as appropriate given the precautions your surgeon may provide. Then as you move, you want, once you're able to grant access with weight-bearing restrictions, and I would imagine you're still having some range of motion limitations, you know, eight to 12 weeks, you start eight to, you know, eight weeks to 12 weeks to 16 weeks, so months three, four, and five, in my opinion, are really good general strength training, right? GPP, general physical preparation. You're really hammering home those good strength and conditioning principles that include absolute strength, include developing a robust uh, aerobic system, a lot of tempo training, and also spending a lot of time with re-education of appropriate squatting mechanics, appropriate lunging mechanics, appropriate single leg squatting mechanics, because one of the things that we've noticed in the ACL literature is that there's this hesitation to load the knee. And that's a product of potentially the quadricep being not as strong as it once was. So you'll see individuals adopt a hip dominant strategy versus a knee dominant strategy. So for your listeners, what that means is in a 
the dominant strategy, what we're looking for in say a single leg squat is that we keep our center of mass and our head over our midfoot. But sometimes what you see is a compensation because of the fear of loading the knee or the inadequate strength that you'll see them load the hip more. So they'll shift their weight back into their hip and they'll pitch their trunk forward, right? It's kind of like this classic compensation pattern that exists uh, post knee injury. It must, must not just limit that to ACL. So those next three months, I think, like I said, months three, four, and five, really just trying to hammer home good foundation of strength and, and mechanics and comfort within those ranges. Because ultimately, once you get to the phases of being able to tolerate higher loads, higher intensities, higher volume, we don't want to be focusing on the minutia of the mechanics. And we want to be able to just get to a place where we, you know, five, six months down the road, you wouldn't even know this person had ACL surgery and you're in a phase of reconditioning and retraining to get to a high performance. And so that final phase of rehab to me is the same phase as like off-season conditioning. It's going to be a lot of volume to stimulate hypertrophy. It's going to be implementing higher velocities as they progress with adequate strength and are tolerating it well. You're also going to start impact training gradually, and you're going to monitor how the knee presents with swelling or pain. And ultimately, impact and high velocities are going to kind of dictate toward you know, your end of your rehab, but you're also going to monitor how they're responding. And that's where I think a lot of the criteria-based rehab has come into play where, you know, you see anyway that those stages can last, you know, anywhere from four to six months. And the research is, has shown us that even when you get to 12 months, right, the ACL graft is still, is still maturing. So it kind of questions, should we be clearing individuals to, to return to sport before 12 months. And one research paper that is, is pretty popular in the ACL culture is if once you get to nine months, every month beyond nine months, months 9, 10, 11, and 12, if you delay return to sport, it decreases the likelihood of a re-injury. So I'm in the camp of delaying that as, as best we can. And I err on the side of caution with such a major surgery um, as ACL reconstruction. So ultimately, I think it's a 12 to 14 month process where you're really just trying to get this athlete back to a place where they're comfortable while also acknowledging the constraints you have from a biological healing phase, uh, process of the ACL graft itself. Cool. So is there like any benchmark you're probably going to see? or use on any like technology, like we discussed, like force plate or anything else you're gonna see before you let them like go to like do what they wanna do the most. Absolutely, uh, you, have to, you have to have that, uh, those benchmarks. And so some, without being too specific, some categories I look into is one, we gotta look at the knee itself. And I think it's very important to do isolated strength testing and which would mean like an open chain leg extension and, and leg curl. So a hamstring quadriceps strength testing. I prefer isokinetic testing um, versus, excuse me, isometric testing. I think isokinetic just gives us a bit more information, but given not everyone has access to that, isometric serves its purpose as well. And then I'm looking at general strength training, uh, strength training numbers. I like to use velocity-based training scale where I'm looking at a rep set scheme and a, you know, a volume and intensity based on the speed zones I'm chasing. So I like to use VBT within that, let's say middle to end stage of rehab once you really get into some good training. And then 
I enjoy using force plates like we talked about earlier because they give us a lot of information about the strategy, especially I like to use them from monitoring the deceleration of the eccentric components. I think, I think we do a good job of getting people from a concentric and a power output. I think we struggle as an industry with the deceleration and eccentric component. And I think it's because not everybody has access to force plates. So I think that's an important component that um, is a part of my process. And then I like to look at just general performance outputs. I like to look at sprint speed. I like to look at agility speed. I like to use a 505. I like to use a full court sprint. And I want to get this athlete to an acceptable level where they were at pre-injury, which for me is with plus or minus 10% of baseline. I love them to be um, above baseline, but I think when you get within 10%, now you're, you're in a place of, is it, is, are they safe to go out there? And I, and I think they are. So to circle back, you know, we got isokinetic, we got force plates, we have velocity-based training, we have sprint speed, we have counter movement jump. And then you, you're kind of using a graded exposure to the basketball game itself where we're dosing the intensity of the drills, right? We're going to go from 1v1 to 3v3 to 5v5 and monitoring the volume of those as they progress through basketball, vice versa saying, hey, you've hit all these benchmarks in the PT room, you've hit all these benchmarks in the strength training room, go play basketball. I think we can do a really good job of monitoring what they're doing on the court simply by manipulating the variables of number of players, the number of players and opponents, the size of the space and the overall duration that they're out there. And I think you do all of those things. Um, they can integrate with one another, tying in the strength and conditioning, tying in the sport coaches. And I think that makes a very robust rehab plan that gets all parties involved. And ultimately the athlete's going to be encouraged by that because they see it's a big team effort. If, and if the individual managing the rehab has access to these resources. I love this answer. So <clears throat> you mentioned that our industry are most more biased to like uh, chasing like peak power or like uh, jumping higher, like running faster. And there's like, there's probably more and more res uh, tension been drawn to like uh, deceleration, that kind of stuff. So uh, besides uh, eccentric phase, uh, what do you think like we should be focusing on or like what are the data you think we should look into when we use like technology like force plates? Great question. And I think we have to ask the question, what are we, what are we trying to improve? And, or what is the, the data collection from said piece of technology? How is it going to influence your decision-making process? Right, I've been in situations where I was a part of a soccer team and we were at the boom, I would consider the boom of sports science and tech within most American sports. And we were collecting data, not really knowing or having any direction how we were gonna use it, but we knew we should collect some data and we should monitor it. I think ultimately it's, we didn't do as good of a job as we could because from the jump, we never had a direction of where we wanted to go. So I think anytime you go to implement technology, we have to understand what question are we trying to answer or 
how are we going to utilize the data or the results that we get to influence our day-to-day decision-making within our training strategies and our rehab strategies and interventions. So I don't necessarily think there's one specific piece of tech or one specific variable that we should all be looking at or using. I think within the scope of the practitioner, within the scope of your environment, deciding what are your holes or what are your gaps that you may or may not be aware of, or how can tech technology make you more efficient and more proficient at what you're doing so that you get stronger results at a quicker rate. So I think that's where our mind goes when it comes to implementing tech and deciding what variables or what piece of tech to look at. So at the end of the day, it still go back to uh, like what the coaches or what the physical therapists want to know and how to help them decide uh, what, what is better for the athlete. Am I right? Yeah, I think it's, it's a combination of the coaches, the coaches' knowledge and expertise, the, the athletes' preferences as well. I think one thing we have to always remind ourselves is as much as we spend time growing and developing and learning what we're trying to do and implement in our beliefs, we have to acknowledge that the access to information that these athletes have via social media, via the internet, like they're learning and exploring options too. So I think we have to listen to them and understand, hey, do you have any biases? Do you have any preferences? Are there things that you are reading or understand that you want to implement in your training? I've had several athletes, even in rehab cases, even in just off-season training, they come to me and say, Adam, man, I, I, I saw this cool thing on the internet. Or, hey, man, I was reading this article and you know this really caught my attention. And I thought, man, I, I want to implement part of this in my program. Great, I'm all for it. Because if they want to do it and they believe in it, And as long as it's going to do no harm or create any noise or confounding results, let's implement it because the more an athlete believes in something, the more I think effort and intent they're going to put into it, vice versa, us implementing something that we believe in and they don't care about. I think you're going to have way more um, success in the intervention that they believe in, given that it does you know, hold water and it does have some merit into what we're trying to achieve, vice versa, that the intervention that they don't know, they know nothing about. And we're advocating, 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 ultimately, they just don't care about it. So it's a combination, right? It's a combination of the coach and the athlete at the same time. So can you give us an example of like, probably an athlete, what they saw on the internet, they think it's interesting and you combine it with your like, tests yeah i think let me think about this recently i mean i had i mean for example i had one athlete that we were doing a lot of blood flow restriction training with and he hated it right if anyone that's done blood flow restriction training as it's designed to do it's it's a brutal intervention especially for the legs right it's tough you're either doing it endurance based on the bike or you know high volume for strength training and hypertrophy in the gym and I was getting a lot of, you know, he was, he was fighting me on it. I mean, guy was an absolute warrior and he, he still, he still wanted to do it, but it wasn't until he saw Conor McGregor doing BFR um, for his arms as part of like recovery, or maybe it was like, he was going through surgery himself. And he's like, Oh man, like I'm not the only one doing this. I see other people doing, Hey Adam, like, can we do, can we do more BFR? Can we, can we implement in different ways? So that's one thing that comes to mind. And I think, not only did he, you know, see another athlete do, do it, which gave it credibility, which is like, hey, like someone, another professional athlete, although it's a different sport, it's still one of his peers. And he said, man, okay, you know what? There's something to this. I want to do this if he's doing it. 
So that's one example that I mean, a recent example that came to mind um, about an athlete looking in. And I think the, the common thread that I see is there's always athletes uh, talking about um, diet supplements or nutritional strategies because there's an abundance of that on the internet, right? The, you know, from big pharma to the supplement industry. I mean, there's so much money in business to be made there that constantly being asked questions about those things because, you know, they, whether it's a lifestyle, whether it's a brand, whether it's, um, you know, new research that came out, guys are, guys are kind of into that. And it's, and it's easy, right? Like how easy to take a supplement or a pill or add this to your shake or, Hey, I'm going to eliminate this from my diet, or I'm going to add this to my diet. It's kind of low risk and possibly high reward. So that's another area that I would constantly, I think we're seeing, um, athletes come to the table with ideas and suggestions. Cool. So <clears throat> last question before I let you go. Uh, nowadays, players are playing, like, players' career are getting longer. Like, players like LeBron James or players like Kobe Bryant, like, probably going to play till the, like, probably, like, 40 years old. So, uh, for these kind of athletes, they're probably getting, like, more and more time or, like, anyway, their career is longer. So, how, what is it going to, or how is it going to be different for their uh, rehab program and training program? That's a great question. And I kind of want to speak on the longevity piece. I think as an industry over time, we've just gotten better at sports medicine and sports performance and the athletes are reaping the benefits of it. Truthfully, I think, you know, I think a, a great example is, um, you know, Clay Thompson, Clay Thompson had an Achilles rupture and an ACL reconstruction within two years and 15, 20 years ago, there's a good chance he never comes back. But given how much this industry has grown from the science, the practice and understanding and getting better at that I think that speaks upon athletes being able to play longer and then also you know your high your high profile athletes having the resources to maximize one to two percent to give them that extra bump so I think it's important to acknowledge those things as a society and an industry how we've grown from a rehab or training perspective you have to understand where the athletes are coming from and so if you have an athlete that has a lot of mileage on them, you have an athlete that's older, you got to respect biology, right? An athlete that's 35 years old, we know from longevity, we start to see, you know, strength and muscle mass losses, you know, year, year, year turnover, right? I think it's possibly as early as 35 years old, you start to see a one to 3% decline in muscle mass and strength. Um, so I think as you get to those older athletes, it's just understanding, hey, they're just an older human and they're battling just age related decline possibly in, in certain aspects. But we know that exercise, we know that strength training, we know that endurance training can mitigate those and, and reduce the likelihood of those things occurring. So I think it's an understanding of those things, but also understanding that, Hey, you know, they just have a lot of miles on them. So some days they, they just need to take, take a little bit easier. It's, Maybe they don't need a high frequency of high intensity sessions. And maybe they only need one to two every seven to 10 days to maintain what they have, because ultimately they're probably going to recover slower than the younger athlete, not saying that they will, but if we consider age related changes that occur from a 35, 36, 40 year old versus a 22, 23 year old, 
there's over a decade that we have to acknowledge there's going to be differences from those components as well. So I don't think there's anything drastically you change. It's just understanding how the athlete's going to respond, understanding where they come from, but also listening to the athlete and an older athlete, what's been successful for them. If you have to imagine, unless they've consistently had an individual team for them for most of their career, they've probably experienced a dozen strength coaches, a dozen, you know, physical therapists, a dozen massage therapists. I'm sure they've tried a lot of stuff and they probably know their body better than most, if not all. So I think it's important to listen to them and work with them as far as what works and providing your input when, when inquired about and providing your advice in certain situations. But ultimately my experience with those older athletes is you're kind of just working with them and listening to them. They really know what works and ultimately you know, they're the ones driving the car, not you. So kind of got to get on board. And does this kind of like go back to like what you mentioned? Like instead of just uh, looking at like peak power, peak force, uh, things like deceleration, eccentric strength, it's going to help them more. Yeah, you know, that's a tough question to answer in absolute because I, I, I prefer to understand, hey, what if you run your testing battery, where, where are they deficient? Where are, they, where are their gaps versus, you know, saying, hey, everybody needs to work on eccentrics. Everybody needs to work on peak power. No, I think some athletes are just more prone to being very good, you know, braking systems. Some athletes are really good with a good gas pedal, right? That's just part of like morphology, or, you know, their archetype, their genetic makeup. So I, it's important to acknowledge those things, right? Let's use the example. If you take, you know, a Norwegian athlete versus a Jamaican athlete, based on just genetics, a Norwegian athlete most likely is going to be pretty good in endurance-based sports, and the Jamaican athletes probably be better at, you know, sprinting sports or fast-paced sports, right? That we've seen that in the research and the science. So I use that as examples to suggest, hey, let's let's pause and take a break and say, hey what exactly does this athlete need based on whatever assessment and testing better I want to put them through. And also, Hey, how long have they been playing? Are they young? Are they an old athlete? Let's consider age related changes that may influence kind of the decision-making process. Hey, is there some things that they have worked with that have been successful things that like, Hey, I've tried this, this just didn't work for me. And then kind of piecing that big old puzzle together and say, Hey, here's your plan. So uh, that's like all the question I have for today. So if there's like any like uh, coaches or therapists are interested in what we are talking about today, where can they reach out to you? Sure thing, man. This was fun. I appreciate you reaching out. And they, they can certainly reach out over Instagram. That's kind of the social media platform I inter, uh, interact with the most. So happy to uh, connect with anyone over Instagram as well. Cool.